giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And we are back with you here on The Punch Out, 30th of April, 2021, one day before May Day, International Workers' Day. We won't be here because we're here Monday through Friday, but happy May Day to everyone who is celebrating and hopefully all the events you are participating in go quite well. But here today on the show, we've got plenty for you. We're going to be talking about the effects of tear gas on protesters last summer, or at least some of the uh, initial evidence that's emerging around that, especially how it's affecting women. We are also going to turn to Colombia, which was rocked this week by two days of protests and a massive national strike. But before we get to either of those two important stories, we want to start with the prison camp in Guantanamo Bay, run by the United States military. Well, you don't hear much about it now, but you may know that there are 40 people left in Guantanamo Bay, the prison camp that was set up allegedly for terrorists after 9-11. And one of those detainees, Abu Zubaida, is now suing the United States and six other countries in front of the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention in an attempt to end his 19-year detention there in Guantanamo Bay. And Abu Zubaida was in many ways has been, I should say, one of the most high profile of the Guantanamo Bay detainees because his story, primarily because of whistleblowers, was able to come out. He was one of the earliest people to be waterboarded and waterboarded brutally here 83 times. Uh, The New Yorker who wrote about this said uh, in this waterboarding that at some points it drove him, quote, to fits of hysteria and involuntary spasms. Uh, They were so aware the U.S. interrogators that what they were doing was completely illegal, this waterboarding him 83 times, that they actually told their superiors that if he was to die during the interrogation, they would cremate his body to cover their own tracks. And by the way, they were interrogating him so brutally, they actually did think they had killed him one time. So it gives you a sense, but just on top of all of that, somewhere in all this torture, Zubaida also lost one of his eyes took his eye, waterboarded him 83 times. And what was so notable to many around the world about this case was the fact that even though the CIA had said that he was the number three of al-Qaeda, the number three, two below Osama bin Laden, turned out he was never even a member of al-Qaeda. Never even a member. Detained for 19 years for nothing. Tortured. As I mentioned, 40 detainees remain. Now, 12 of them have either pled guilty or are involved in military commission proceedings. And many of those military commissions may never happen because of the issues of torture surrounding uh, a lot of the evidence there. The remaining 28 who are there, though, uh, could just be transferred out. There are actually six detainees who have been approved 
to be transferred, but just have not been released. They could easily just be released immediately. Uh, many of them, it's just unclear what they're doing there. Even some who uh, are allegedly tied to other crimes in other countries. There's Abdul Malik, for instance, from Kenya, uh, and he is at least suspected of having committed two attacks against Israeli targets in Kenya. Now, if he did indeed do that, 13 people died. But why he's in Guantanamo Bay and held by the United States over 14 years indefinitely rather than tried in Kenya or Israel uh, just gives you a sense of how completely ridiculous this is. Abu Zubaydah, uh, Abdul Mal. I mean, they were just sweeping people up and bringing them in here. Uh, and now they have 40 of them left and they don't want to eliminate them. Uh, as they don't want to get rid of them, I should say, eliminate them. They they want to just throw the throw them away, uh, lock them away, and throw away the key. Maybe is the best way to put that. So uh, that is the status there of individuals in Guantanamo Bay. So the question becomes: Will Guantanamo Bay be closed by President Joe Biden? Now. You may remember during the Obama administration, there was a, a row over this issue, and it, Obama decided not to close Guantanamo Bay because of this congressional act that prohibits detainees being moved out of Guantanamo Bay. But, you know, most legal experts have noted that almost certainly that act, that congressional act, is unconstitutional, that the president not only has the power to close Guantanamo, but that in court, it would certainly hold up. And certainly, you're in a situation where if they transfer all the detainees, by the time it works its way through the courts, the likelihood of it, it actually even, you know, being able to be stopped or reversed is not that great. So easily someone who had the political will to address the issue of Guantanamo Bay could in fact do so. The Obama administration did not. We'll certainly see if the Biden administration does. Obviously, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, if they rule in favor of Abu Zubaydah, that will not move the United States. We know that uh, they have continued many proceedings against people who they are arbitrarily, arbitrarily detaining, according to the United Nations. But nevertheless, it is a clear and signal reminder of the unbelievable moral stain that is Guantanamo Bay. People who were tortured, people who have been indefinitely detained. It's a forever prison. It's a black side of its own. People's complete and total livelihood, physical well-being, mental health completely destroyed. Many of them totally innocent of anything. Some of them, like I said, six of them, they said they could be released and are holding them anyway. Just an unbelievable moral stain. The Biden administration can do something about it. Never should have been set up in the first place. Quite frankly, shouldn't even have Guantanamo Bay, which is a colonial uh, seizure of land from Cuba. But we shall see here in the upcoming years whether or not any legal proceeding will address this or whether or not somehow, some way, the Biden administration will close Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> Well, in Colombia, on Wednesday and Thursday, thousands of workers, peasants, teachers, students, doctors, women's groups, indigenous organizations, organizations of Afro-descendant communities, left-wing political parties, and more, all participated in a national strike and mobilized in a huge way all across the country of Colombia. There were huge marches, of course, in the cities perhaps you've heard of, like the capital city of, of Bogota, also Cali, Medellin, but really, truly the breadth and depth of the country. Small towns often had some of the largest protests. And the reason this strike was called by such a wide range of organizations, especially in the labor sector, specifically why it was called, is something called the Sustainable Solidarity Bill, which was brought to Congress by the government, the right-wing government of Ivan Duque on April 15th. Now, 
Allegedly, this bill was designed to alleviate poverty in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, which Colombia, by the way, hasn't handled very well. But in the name of this so-called solidarity, what the government actually did was that they increased the uh, value-added tax on staple goods, on fuel, on other public services. They expanded tax collection uh, to many in many different ways by increasing the tax on agricultural inputs. They increased the tax on pensions. They froze wages in the public sector until 2026. They eliminated subsidies on public services, uh, imposed tolls on many roads that connect the countryside with the cities. So you can see as I'm listing this here, it doesn't really sound like solidarity. It sounds like they just dropped a bunch of regressive taxes on working class people and middle class people in Colombia. And if it sounds like that, that's because it is what exactly happened. And this is in a country where 34% of the people are living below the poverty line. We've got 30% of families that don't have adequate homes. 81% of people living in uh, rural homes in Colombia, no connection to the piped water network. 68% of the population suffering from overcrowding. You've got the per capita income, though, of the richest 10%, 46 times greater than the poorest 10%. But never Nevertheless, in the name of solidarity, this government of Ivan Duque decided to put a huge range of regressive taxes on working class people. So the response was the strike that took place and the huge mobilizations, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands around the country. And despite the fact that these mobilizations were completely peaceful, there was, and you certainly, if you look on the internet, you'll see quite a bit of repression by security, uh, security forces against the demonstrators in different parts of the country. A lot of the scenes that have come out are from Bogota. The National Police and Anti-Disturbance Mobile Squadron SMAD, uh, which is just, you know, anti-protest police, essentially, were using all sorts of force. They were using tear gas. Dozens of people were injured. Dozens of people were arrested. In Cali, Colombia, at least one person died due to police repression. And again, these were totally peaceful mobilizations as it concerns the mobilizations and the strike. And this, by the way, is the government that is maybe the closest ally of the United States in South America, historically and contemporarily. Ivan Duque, one of the most right-wing leaders in the Americas. And allegedly, Colombia is supposed to be some shining beacon of democracy vis-a-vis -vis countries like Venezuela and Cuba. But here is a true look into the nature of Colombia, a social model controlled by elites like Duque that keeps people in enforced poverty, that loots the country of its resources, and then in the midst of one of the greatest crises, turns on the working class and the middle class to bear the burden of the destruction that was wrought by COVID-19. And it just tells you right there that when the U.S. is talking about democracy, human rights, freedom, it's absolutely hypocritical in South America and everywhere else. <laughs>
we have seen, we saw at that time last year in 2020 that many people complained, but we've seen now that there is a new report that has come out uh, really detailing this. It's talked to thousands of people. It's the first peer-reviewed report on this issue. Nearly 900 people, according to this report, uh, reported abnormal menstrual cycles, including intense cramping and increased bleeding that began or persisted days after their initial exposure to tear gas. And by the way, hundreds of others complained of other negative health effects, including headaches, severe headaches, nausea, diarrhea, and various mental health concerns. Five transgendered people who were taking testosterone, which typically stops menstruation, uh, also said that they had seen cramps and bleeding start again after exposure to tear gas. And this is essentially a follow-up on something from a report from Oregon Public Broadcasting that just was generally talking to people at protests that reported more or less the exact same thing uh, towards the end of last year. Noting that, quote, some protesters reported getting their period multiple times in a single month. Others reported debilitating cramps, at least one that ended in a hospital visit and blood clots the size of half a fist. Blood clots the size of half a fist. Mm. And outside of the United States, there's evidence from both Bahrain and Chile that people have actually uh, had miscarriages in relationship to tear gas. So the exposure to tear gas obviously is having a major effect on people's uh, people's bodies in many different ways. And it's very unclear. There's very little research into actually what is going on. But as this emerges, it is quite alarming given the very significant amount of tear gas that is used by police in protest in the United States, and even people who have talked about tear gas drifting into their homes, they're not even a part of protest. In Seattle, for instance, individuals who were just at home with their windows open reported similar physical effects just from having it waft into their homes. And obviously, of course, when it's deployed, it's deployed around everyone, uh, you know, people who are, are pregnant, people who are vulnerable because of other diseases, children, uh, you know, older people, all sorts of people who could be very negatively affected. We're in the midst of a pandemic, COVID-19, that is a respiratory pandemic. So all of these things together show that a lot of these so-called non-lethal methods of crowd control or whatever it may be are very serious and have very serious impacts on people's health, many of which are not understood at all. And yet it can continues to happen. They continue to be used just rampantly and wantonly. And it's one more example of the whole concept of policing in the United States being one of protect and to serve being completely hollow. I mean, not only are there a lot of questions about how this tear gas is being used vis-a-vis people's right to protest, but just the fact that you would use something that is actually listed as a chemical weapon in the conventions of war on peaceful protesters, even, you know, maybe people you claim are doing something without any real knowledge of what the potential impacts could be on those people or the surrounding population in the neighborhood you're in is truly stunning, truly callous. You could argue that it really is criminal, but it's certainly the behavior that is participated in by police departments from coast to coast here in the United States. And now we have at least some evidence of the serious impacts of that activity. And that's going to do it for us here today on The Punch-Out, 30th of April, 2021. Again, tomorrow, International Workers' Day. Happy May Day to everyone. We will be back with you on Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, as we always are, here on The Punch-Out from Breakthrough News.